Would you open your Bibles, please, to Acts, the 21st chapter? Last week, we had uh, taken a look at what was happening in the Apostle Paul's life right up through uh, verse 16. And there is now a transition that's being made. His goal and objective, having gone through all of Greece and then up in through Macedonia, then over into what we would call Asia Minor, uh, has now brought him back down to Jerusalem. He had stopped in Caesarea and had uh, some encounters there, and now he's arriving back at the, the city of Jerusalem. This is the place that he had as his goal and as his objective. And the Lord's going to do something to him there. He had been warned about it, and it's coming. The Lord does things to his people frequently that we don't always understand. And yet in the midst of the things that the Lord does, he is working out a plan and a purpose that goes much higher than that which we would have for ourselves. If you look at the lives of people in the scriptures and you see how often God introduced into their lives a variety of different events that took them to a higher level, even though those events were difficult and in many cases um, very, very hard to bear. In the end, you saw the beauty of God's plan. Uh, Look at a guy by the name of Joseph. You, You look at what happened in his life and you see how his brothers had despised him and how they took advantage of an opportunity to essentially be rid of him. They sold him to these slave traders who took him down into the land of Egypt. And he was purchased down there by Potiphar. And then he's accused falsely by Potiphar's wife of uh, an attempt to be immoral. And he is sent to prison. And he is in prison for years. It, It wasn't a short time. He was there for years. And then God work this plan that he had already developed and now it's just a matter of having Joseph live it out. Joseph is ultimately exalted to the place of second highest in the land of Egypt and he actually becomes responsible for the physical salvation of his family and of others and obviously led into a much greater part of God's plan in having the children of Israel in the land of Egypt and then ultimately delivered and uh, giving us a picture of what Christ does when he delivers us out of the bondage of sin. In, in more, uh, these really aren't modern times, but bringing us up to date more closely, you all know that the Bible is the uh, best-selling book of all time anywhere. Do you all know what the second best-selling book is? Pilgrim's Progress. Wouldn't have guessed that, would you? Some of you would have known that. Pilgrim's Progress, written by John Bunyan, who was thrown into prison and wrote Pilgrim's Progress from prison. And you look at that and you say, the impact, now in our day and age, people don't read a lot of the classics and things like that, and maybe you have read it, maybe you haven't read it. It's sometimes a little bit hard, because even uh, today it's a little bit difficult unless it's in a more modern translation, or I should say a modern update, 
It's still a little bit difficult to to follow along with some of the the older English. But here is this book that has had an impact upon literally millions of people. And God used a man who had a real heart's desire to serve the Lord and took him through a very, very difficult time and then in the end produced this incredible publication of the processes that an individual goes through in coming to Christ and the difficulties and trials that they might face. Anyway, you you, you know that God's plan sometimes takes us through very, very difficult experiences. Paul's going to go through a very difficult experience and he adds to our understanding that God will use a variety of different methods to take us to higher levels of service for him. Some of you already know that. You have gone through some of the difficulties and you know that as a result of those difficulties, the Lord has led you to higher planes of opportunity and of ministry. Some might be in the midst of something right now and you're saying, I don't get this. I've done everything I know I'm supposed to do and yet I'm going through these real difficult times and you're not there yet. But the Lord is taking you through these experiences of life to bring you to a place where he makes you more useful for his service. Where your life actually has an eternal purpose. There's a reason for living other than just being born, working, dying, and that's it. And now you're going through that process. When we come to Acts chapter 21... I think what the Lord does for us here is He gives us a series of different things, a series of different methods that He uses to bring people to a place where He can make them more useful and more fulfilled in their accomplishment of His desires. And here's what I'd like you to do. As we follow through this portion and and we're going to go right from verse 17 right down through the end of the chapter i'm going to try to divide this into four segments and these segments will each show us a little different perspective on how god uses a variety of different things in our lives to take us further in our walk with him paul's going to be the one who shows us this he's in jerusalem He's arrived at the place he wants to be. But all of a sudden, things become a little bit unglued. And it begins right within the church at Jerusalem. Listen to what happens as he arrives in verse verse 17 of chapter 21. And when we had come to Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly. That's good. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James... And the, and all the elders were present. Now what is happening here is Paul is meeting with the leadership in the, the church at Jerusalem. James, who is mentioned here, is overseeing this flock. He is probably what we would call the pastor, but he is joined by others who are spiritual leaders within the church, the rest of the elders. And this James is the half-brother of Jesus. He is not the James who was the disciple, but he's the James that was identified for us very specifically as the half-brother of Christ leading this particular group of believers. Verse 18, On the following day, Paul went in uh, with us to James and to all the elders, and all the elders were present. When he had greeted them, he told in detail those things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. 
And when they heard it, they glorified the Lord and they said to him, You see, brother, how many myriads of Jews there are who have believed and they are all zealous for the law. But they have been informed about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, saying that they ought not to circumcise their children nor to walk according to the customs. What then? The assembly must certainly meet, for they will hear that you have come. Now, are you, you following here what's happening? It's, it could get a little bit confusing, so let's keep this in our minds. Paul and his entourage, the people who had been traveling with him, Luke as well as some of the others, there's another fellow by the name of Trophimus that we're going to be introduced to in just a short time. Um, they are together meeting with these leaders in the church, Paul has rehearsed to them what God had done through him, what God had done through his ministry, and he is giving God all the glory for the things that have been done. But from a human point of view, he's done everything he's supposed to have done. He's, he's living right. He is doing the right thing. But the Jews who had been converted to Christ, who now make up the church at Jerusalem, are saying, listen, there are many others of the Jewish faith who have put their trust in Christ, but they're really suspicious of you, Paul. They believe that you have just turned your back on all of the customs that we hold to. You have forsaken the the principles upon which we were raised and the things that had laid the groundwork for the coming of Christ. And what's going to happen is... Those who have, in some cases, accepted Christ as their Savior, but don't fully understand the freedom that we have in Christ, they're a little bit skeptical about you. You need to do something to show them that you're not just running away from everything that we have as our backgrounds. And there are also those who are not believers, who are looking at you with a jauntous eye, and they are seeing in you someone who is nothing more than an enemy of Judaism. And so we need you to do something. And now they're going to tell him what they would like him to do. Verse 23, Therefore, do what we tell you. We have four men who have taken a vow, probably a Nazarite vow, but we're not told specifically what this vow is. Take them and be purified with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads and that all may know that those things of which they were informed concerning you are nothing, but that you yourself also walk orderly and keep the law. You still live by the principles of the word of God that had been delivered to us in the Old Testament scriptures under Moses and under the giving of the law. But concerning the Gentiles who believe, we have written and decided that they should observe no such thing except that they should keep themselves from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, and from sexual immorality. As we stop at that particular verse, what we understand is this, that the leaders of the church were still clinging from their Jewish backgrounds to those principles upon which they were raised, realizing that only Christ could give them eternal life, but recognizing that there was virtue and there was value with these other elements. The law, it was a schoolmaster. It showed you the righteous standard that God had that you could never live up to. 
So the law is just and it's right and it's good, even as Paul would later write and he would say that that is the truth about the law. But then they said this, now we understand, Paul, the other things that you have written about. We understand how you have been able, under the the direction of the Holy Spirit, to reveal that the keeping of the law is not the basis upon which we find our forgiveness in life, but it is through the sacrifice of Christ, through that alone, through his death on our behalf, dying for our sins, being buried, rising again from the dead. And we don't expect the Gentiles to live according to the principles by which we were raised. We understand the grace of God. And so they reiterate that which had been determined at what we... Do you remember back in chapter 15, what is called the Jerusalem Council? Do you remember when we went through that? And the church at Antioch asked the church at Jerusalem for some advice. What should we tell the the people in light of the fact that these Judaizers have come into the church at Antioch and they're telling you you've got to be circumcised to be saved and, and all of these other things? They said, we came to this conclusion, we sent them advice and said, you know what, you're not to live under the law. There are four things we're going to ask you to do that we believe are wise and they're good in relationship to uh, not only your personal faith in Christ, but to your testimony to others. And, and they named them. Don't, don't eat things that were offered to idols. Don't eat things that were strangled. Uh, don't become involved in sexual immorality. And, and they've gone through these four issues that they have told the Gentiles and they tell Paul, listen, we understand that. That's going to be very important to Paul. And here's why. Just take your Bibles and turn to Galatians. Um, there's actually two passages that will deal with this in the book of Galatians. But I, I'm going to just have us look at, at the one. In Galatians, the sixth chapter, I want you to see that there is no question as to the propriety of, of belief in the person of Christ as being the only means upon which anyone is saved. But here in chapter... 6 of Galatians, beginning down there at verse 12. Let's begin at verse 11. See with what large letters I have written to you with my own hand. As many as desire to make a good showing in the flesh, these would compel you to be circumcised. All right, do do you understand what he's saying now? You've got to put all these little... Pieces of the puzzle together. What he is saying is, there are people who would have you still live under the law. There are people of Jewish backgrounds who have come, and they would have you at Galatia, who are Gentiles, who have believed in Christ, they would have you believe for a moment, well, they would have you believe forever, that you still need to follow the law and trust Christ. So Paul's going to make it very clear, that is not the case. He says... Uh, these would compel you to be circumcised only that they may not suffer persecution for the cross of Christ. He says, you know why these guys are telling you this? They don't want the heat from the the Jews who are not believers. So they're going to mix grace with law. That's really what's at issue here. For not even those who are circumcised, in other words, not even the Jews, keep the law. They've all broken the law too. But they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. In other words, hey, look, they're, they're following the law. Why, why are you unbelieving Jews so upset about us who are followers of Christ? We're still keeping the law. And Paul says, wait a minute. This is not the truth of God's word. 
But God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but a new creation. You know what he's just said? Salvation is by grace alone, in Christ alone, through faith alone. Period. But now he's in Jerusalem, and the issue is not salvation. The issue is maintaining open doors. Do you remember what we read earlier in 1 Corinthians chapter 9? I'd ask you to pay very close attention to that because what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 9 was this. I will become all things to all men. Not going to compromise any of the truths that are necessary for us to believe in order to understand what God has to say. What I am willing to do is this. If I'm living with the Gentiles, I'm going to act like a Gentile. I'm not going to worry about eating anything that was um, unclean. If they offer me pork, I can eat pork. You remember under the law, you weren't allowed to do that. But I, I could do that. If they, Man, could you imagine waking up by the sea and the fire's already going and there is bacon sizzling on the griddle? Doesn't that smell so good? Do you ever go out camping or anything? And you, and you make that bacon in the morning and it's crackling away and oh, you smell that and you smell the pot of coffee off to the side. I'm sure the disciples were coffee drinkers. And, and, and you, you just, oh, it just smells so good. And Paul says, you know, uh, if I'm with the Gentiles, I, I can, I can eat what the Gentiles eat. I, I can, I can live according to that. But you know what? When I'm with the Jews, uh, they still observe the Sabbath. I know my salvation doesn't depend upon this, but I am not going to flaunt the freedom that I have in Christ. I'm not going to walk more than three-fifths of a mile. That was the Sabbath day's journey. I'm going to stay within that realm. I am not going to go further than that. I know that there are things that I can do to keep peace. And this is exactly what Paul is trying to do. He is trying to live at peace with all men. To the Jews, I become like a Jew. To the Gentiles, I become like a Gentile. He's not being a chameleon. He is being an individual who has the wisdom to understand. You don't violate the consciences of the people you're trying to reach. You deal with them according to knowledge. But... Truth is undeniable. Salvation is through Christ, nothing else. Does this all make sense? Do you, do you all see how these pieces of the puzzle are coming together? Is there anybody that doesn't? Do I, and don't be afraid to raise your hand. I don't mind. I honestly don't. Does this all make sense? Okay, then we can move on. Now, you get down here to verse uh, 25. Um, But concerning the Gentiles who believe, we have written and decided... Oh, we already read that. Verse 26. Then Paul took the men, and the next day, having been purified with them, entered the temple to announce the expiration of the days of purification, at which time an offering should be made for each one of them. Here is Paul's effort to live at peace. 
God is going to use Paul's effort to live at peace as a means by which he is going to take Paul into a very, very difficult spot in order to raise him to a higher level of usefulness. See, Paul had already rehearsed the way he had lived. He told them, listen, here is what I have done. In the years that I have been gone from you on my last missionary journey, I have been faithful in communicating the gospel of Christ. Many have come to believe in Christ as their Savior. Um, we're not confronted with this particular issue here, but we know that this is the reason for which he had come to Jerusalem with such haste, not only to be there on the day of Pentecost, but do you remember what else he was doing along with the guys that were traveling with him? They were bringing monetary help from the churches in Macedonia because the believers in Jerusalem were suffering as a result of not a plague, but a famine that had come, and they were not only suffering because of the famine, but they were also suffering at the hands of their relatives and their friends. When they had come to know Christ as Savior, they were put off. They were, they were shunned by the others. And now they are living lives of, of destitution. And here comes this gift, and Paul is bringing this with these other men, and they deliver this gift to help relieve the Jews, which was part of the purpose for which they were coming back to Jerusalem. So here, here they've come and Paul is saying, listen, I've been faithful in carrying the gospel. I've been faithful in, in bringing back this help. And, and I, I tried to do everything that I could possibly do to testify to my own commitment to the Word of God. I worked hard for the sake of the gospel. And now... I'm going to add something to that. I'm going to do everything I can to be at peace with the people here in Jerusalem. I'm going to keep the door open. I'm going to show that those who have trusted Christ as Savior out of Judaism don't have to worry about my being antinomian. I am not against the law. I just know the purpose for which the law was given. And then for those Jews that don't believe in Christ... I don't want to be an offense to them. I want to be able to open up doors and and share with them the, the gospel of Christ. And so he adds to this effort to live at peace his desire and his efforts to please what we would call the Judaizers. Have you ever done anything the right way? And it backfires. Have you ever tried to do what's right and you find out, oh, the whole thing is going south. I did the very best that I could. I tried to make all the right decisions. I trained my children in the ways of the Lord and they're going the opposite direction. I I was honest at work. And when the boss found out that I was honest, he looked at me as if he was disgusted with me because he wanted me to kind of pull a few dishonest strings to make things work the way he wanted them to work. Or I did everything within my own home to do what was right and my mate doesn't see things this way and now they're angry with me and everything's coming apart. Have you ever 
You ever done things that you believe, I'm doing it the right way. And then it goes south. That's what's happening with Paul. He's done everything the right way. He's lived at peace. He's been ethical. He's been honest. He's been forthright. He has done everything that you could possibly do. And now he's going to say, like he said to the Corinthians, I will do everything that is necessary to do to try to reach some for Christ without compromising the truth. Watch what happens. Now, when the seven days were almost ended, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him. Wait a minute! I've done everything the right way. What is going on here? Shouldn't everything work out just right if I'm doing everything that's right? Well, you know where the problem was with this. The problem was in the offense of the cross. It doesn't matter if you try to do everything right. The bottom line for the believer is this. If you believe that the only way that a person can find eternal life is by turning in faith and trust to the cross of Calvary where Christ died for our sins and believe in their heart that God has raised him from the dead, you have just violated the the very fabric of what unbelievers reject. They reject the cross. Do you remember what we read just a moment ago in Galatians chapter 6? What was the problem that had emerged... When Paul said, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything. Do you remember what he said the problem was? He said, they don't want to suffer because of the cross of Christ. What's the problem with the cross? It's exclusive. There's no other way. You can believe that Joseph Smith brought the final message from God and that salvation is found through a tie with the Mormon church and women can only find eternal life if they are married to a good Mormon man. And you present the cross of Christ and you violate their conscience, which their conscience is not conforming to God's standards. It has been conformed by the things that they were taught. You can believe that Muhammad was the last prophet that God, that Allah sent. And if you hear about the cross that rejects the concept of Muhammad, that rejects the duplication of the lifestyle that he lived by bowing five times a day to the east and praying, that provides no assurance of salvation. And you say the only way of eternal life is found at the cross of Christ. You're going to violate people's minds and their consciences. And it doesn't matter how good a life you've lived. Don't Christians live relatively good lives? I mean, some do. 
Some Christians are jerks. I'm, I'm serious. They're, they're absolute idiots. They, they say things that the Lord has never said. They try to, to make standards, things that God never set as a standard, but they are holier than God um, in their thinking. They, they know the way things ought to be done. Uh, and so it's going to be that way or else. And uh, there are people like that, and you look at them and you say, well, I can understand why people wouldn't want to follow them. But, you know, for those who are genuinely trying to be honest and trying to work hard and trying to be loving and trying to be kind and trying to care for the needs of other people and, and give of themselves and they watch out for children and they teach them truths and they visit the widows and they they visit the fatherless and they do all the things that believers should do shouldn't things go well and paul would tell you no that's not the way it works you can do everything the right way but god's always going to have an objective for you that's higher than what you are willing to go on your own so the cross becomes an offense. And the cross is not egocentric. Everyone thinking, I can work my way to heaven. I can please God on my own. I can do the things that God wants. Therefore, He will be happy with me. And God says, nope, there's only one who can please me, and that's my son. And unless you have His perfection, and unless you stand clothed in His righteousness... You will never find my pleasure. Never. The cross becomes Christocentric, if that's a word. Christ at the center, not us. So the cross offends. And these guys from Asia who knew that this was the message that Paul preached now come to the temple in Jerusalem. See, they're there for the same reason. They're there to observe Pentecost. They're there to celebrate this big festival. And they see Paul. And what else happens? It says that this crowd laid hands on him, now down to verse 28, crying out, Men of Israel, help! <laughs> now it's going to be this great big emergency. Like, what was Paul doing? Help! This is the man who teaches all men everywhere against the people, the law, and this place, which is not true. He was showing that he was not opposed to these things. He just knew that salvation was not found in these things. And furthermore, he has also brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place, for they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian with him, in the, in the city whom they supposed that Paul had brought into the temple. Let me stop here and give you a little bit of a background on this. There was a temple area that was surrounded by a wall, and only Jews that were there for the purpose of worshiping were allowed into this this area that had the uh, the brazen altar, it had the table of showbread, it had the lamp, and then it had the holiest of holies in which was the Ark of the Covenant, and this is where ultimately the sacrifices would be brought once a year. And and you know that. Jews were only, only Jews were allowed into this boxed off area. But then outside of that was the court of the Gentiles. And Gentiles were allowed to go there because there were Gentiles who were seeking the truth. And they thought maybe the Jews had it. And, and a lot of Gentiles did believe that the Jews had the truth. And so they would gather in that area. But 
if a Gentile went into the inner part where only Jews were allowed, that was a capital offense. You died for that. This was major. So what these Jews from Asia have have now come to Jerusalem and said, they said this Paul, he's teaching everybody against the ways that we believe, which was not true. But he is he is not only that kind of a guy preaching the things that he's preaching, but he took a Gentile into the realm that is only for the Jews. And they made reference to Trophimus, who was walking with Paul in the area of the Gentiles. And now Paul is being falsely accused. He never had done this. But this became the scapegoat. This became the way that the, the unbelieving Jews would be able to pin the problem on, on Paul and to have him dealt with. And so what happened? They got the crowd so stirred up that they grabbed Paul. And you know what their intent was? They wanted to kill him. They wanted to kill him. Their reaction was extremely violent. It says, And all the city was disturbed and the people ran together, seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple and immediately the doors were shut. They slammed the doors so there couldn't be any more violation. And then this little phrase in verse 31, Now as they were seeking to kill him, Here is Paul being treated violently. He is being falsely accused. And all that was based on false assumptions. Um, I just see so many parallels that fit the way we live today. Are Christians ever falsely accused of doing things that we don't do, but the unsaved just want a way to um, discredit who we are and what we believe? Oh, my goodness. There's all kinds of things. Um, As soon as you hear the, the phrase homophobe, right away Christians are accused of being homophobic. And I know I've said this to our people, but maybe you've not been here when I've said this, but I am not homophobic. I honestly do care deeply for homosexual people. I honestly do. I have friends who are homosexual. I don't want to see harm come to them, but I do want them to understand that their lifestyle is sinful if they're engaged in homosexual activity. If they just have the desires, but do not submit to those desires, that's a good thing. Just like heterosexuals have desires that cannot be righteously fulfilled, so they don't submit to those. What, what's the big deal here? You, you don't submit to inappropriate, sinful desires. It doesn't matter whether you were born that way or whether it developed that way, Whatever the cause is, if it's sin, it's sin and you don't do it. And God says if you have sexual desires, it should be fulfilled in one environment. One man, one woman, married, and now 
have sex. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> you know, it's hard to know how to respond to that kind of a statement, isn't it? Is it amen or is it amen? You all know what I'm saying. And, and listen, let's not be afraid of that. It's the right thing. It's, it's the way God intended it to be. And there's some people that maybe they have an inclination toward a person of their own gender. But if they don't give in to that, have they committed a sin? No. Temptation is not a sin. Ask James. You're carried away. And when your temptation has conceived, it brings sin. So, I'm not afraid of homosexuals. But I am afraid of their agenda. I am afraid of their being given equal rights by a government that does not understand that this is not an issue of prejudice. It is an issue of biblical morality upon which we stand. And New York has just cut its own throat. Now, I say all that to say this. The world would look at what I have just said to you and they would, they would bash me. You know what? I'm, I've thought about putting out a, a sign for a message that has something to do with homophobia someday just to see what kind of a reaction it would get. I, <laughs> don't, don't, well, I, you never know. Maybe my last Sunday. Um, because the reactions are so strong that they don't hear what you're saying. Jesus Christ died for the homosexual. Jesus Christ died for the heterosexual. Jesus died for the thief. Jesus died for the murderer. Jesus died for me. And they won't hear that. They think that we are homophobic. Truth is, they're Christophobic. They're afraid of Jesus. And they're afraid of what he can do when he forgives and when he sets free, not necessarily to be free from the desires, but to be free from the power that draws a person to fulfill the desires. Does that make sense to you? what he does to those of us who are heterosexual. You might have a desire to be with somebody else. But Christ set you free, so you don't need to do that. You can choose not to. Okay, this message wasn't designed for that purpose. But I hope it does show you the point that no matter what you do, you're going to be falsely accused and the reactions are going to be violent. <laughs> That's the way it is. So, here is Paul now. He is getting beaten up. He is in a position where the crowd wants him to die. So what does God do now to bring him to a place where he is raised or beginning to be raised to a no, whole new level of usefulness? God intervenes. God brings about an intervention. And the intervention isn't coming from where we think it would come. It didn't come from the church. Where was the church in all of this? Has that, did that strike you at all? Let's, 
let's move on down here. It says, now they were seeking to kill him. News came to the commander of the garrison that all Jerusalem was in an uproar. He immediately took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the commander and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Where was the church? It didn't respond. The church doesn't even show up. Where's James? Where are the elders? Where are the people who make up the church? Why wasn't there an outcry coming from a crowd of believers who said, you're not going to lay hands on Paul, and if necessary, to step in and stop this action from taking place? You don't even hear a word. There's no objection. Probably they're hiding. Probably hiding. They had already started to give in. You mean the church at Jerusalem had already started backing off? Yeah, I believe they did. As a matter of fact, in a relatively short period of time, Jerusalem is no longer the center of Christian activity. It's going to be Antioch. And it has been Antioch now for a few years. And I think what had happened was, I think the church in Jerusalem began to compromise. And I think they they lost their zeal and they lost their drive and they lost their willingness to stand up for what's right. And the church didn't respond. Who did? Hold your seats. The government. God used the government. A corrupt, sinful, murderous, vile government. God can use anybody He wants to. He can use anything He chooses to. Here come the Romans. Here come the Democrats. Here come the Republicans. There goes the Tea Party. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) The only point I'm trying to make is this. The heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord. And I know the king wasn't involved here, but the Caesar had set up a governmental system that was designed to keep peace. And these Romans, who had been stationed in a tower just outside the temple, do you know why? The Jews were known for creating problems. And particularly the religious Jews. So a thousand Roman soldiers are garrisoned in the Tower of Antonia. And when word comes that there is a riot going on right outside the temple, a couple hundred of these Roman soldiers under Tertius, uh, Claudius Tertius make their way down and they stop Paul from being killed. He is getting beaten to death. And these guys step in and they rescue him. The government. Had the government made any really lousy decisions up to this point? Absolutely. Was the government corrupt? Yes. 
was the government anti-God? Yes! They wanted Caesar to be worshipped. And God said, you know what? I can use anybody I want to and I'm going to use the government. Let me bring this to a close. They used the government to rescue Paul and there are events that follow. You, 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 we'll, we'll talk about them probably next week. And Paul's life is spared and he is given the opportunity to witness to the Jews who have been trying to kill him and he has been given opportunity to witness to the Romans who have rescued him and as the day unfolds, he's going to be given opportunity to carry a testimony within the prison and then he's going to be given an opportunity to carry a testimony to, the, um, uh, to Caesarea But that's not the bottom line. You want to see the bottom line? Go to chapter 23. And look at verse 11. But the following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Ah, listen to this. Be of good cheer, Paul. For as you have testified for me in Jerusalem, so you must also bear witness at Rome. If you started following this whole unfolding of events from the beginning, you'd say, what is going on? Paul was living a good life. Yes, the cross is going to bring reproach. It's going to cause people to be angry. And yes, I am going to be misunderstood by the world. But why? Why are these things happening? And God says, because I am taking you to a higher level of usefulness. You have never been able to tell about me at Rome. Now you're going to. Do you get what this means for us? You're going through the difficult times right now. Maybe it is persecution. But maybe it's just circumstances that are just, everything seems to be falling apart. And you're going through this hard time. But you want to be faithful to the Lord. And you want to say, Lord, I do believe that your promises are true. And somehow you're going to use this for my good because I love you. And I've been called according to your purpose. And, and it's, it's so dark in here right now. And the Lord says, that's all right. Just hold my hand and I'll walk with you. And when we break out, there will be the light and you'll be able to witness for me at Rome just like you did at Jerusalem. Whatever your Rome is, whatever your Jerusalem was, none of what I'm bringing your way is wasted. Everything I'm bringing your way is for a purpose. And it's a good one. Amen. Father, thank you that we have had this opportunity to look at these events in the Apostle Paul's life. A man like us. A man of sinful heart. A man of deep passion. A man who was saved by your grace and a man that was used by your Spirit. 
Give us the encouragement we need to go through every circumstance of life knowing that you have a purpose that is ultimately to bring glory to yourself and to make us more useful for you. Thank you, Lord, for giving us this clear example. In Jesus' name, amen.